Welcome to Unlocking Leadership. I'm Claire Carpenter and I'm your host. So I'm joined today by Nick Billingham. Nick is the Managing Director for Charity People, which is a specialist charity recruitment consultancy who've worked in that sector for over 30 years. Nick, enormous thanks. Thank you for finding time for our conversation today. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, really looking forward to it. We have a certain topic in mind today. Before we enter that, it'd be great to hear how you find yourself in this role. So what, what's your leadership story, Nick? So I've worked in the space of recruitment in the charity sector for the last 11 years, I think. And I joined Charity People six years ago. Around two years ago, my current managing director announced that he would be retiring and had proposed that he would put my name forward to to replace him as the new managing director, which was all very exciting. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to, to be offered the role by the owner and, and chairman of, of our company. And that was around February 2020. At that point, we had a really nice plan whereby Ed, who was the outgoing managing director, would be retiring in sort of July, August. And we'd have a really great handover where I was learn the ropes. I'd figure out what, what this new role would entail and he'd be right by my side supporting me. And at that point, as you can imagine, February 2020, there was this little news story coming out of China about, about COVID. And um, little did I know that the world was just about to change forever. And so it didn't quite play out as um, as we hoped. One of the first things I had to do was furlough Ed and he was off into the uh, into the sunset playing golf, I think, for, for the next six months. And I was left to, to try and figure out how to run a company and, and really how to navigate a global pandemic and whether recruitment was even still relevant for, for what that new normal might look like post-COVID. So, so yeah, it's been a really interesting couple of years, as you can imagine. I mean, I really can. What a period of time to take up your first MD role. Can only imagine what those first few months were like for you. When you look back on that and you think about the decision you made to step into the role and what you've experienced subsequently, what's been the biggest sort of learning point for you in that period? The way I try to lead the organisation is with a lot of authenticity and a lot of transparency. And I think um, I think that stood me in quite good stead. You know, I've definitely made a lot of mistakes over the last two years, but I think generally we, we've kind of come through this period as, as well as we could have done. And I think the reason behind that is just throughout being incredibly open, honest and transparent with all of the team here yeah. about the decisions that were having to be made and, and what we were undertaking. And I think... I think that's probably the, the biggest learning, I suppose, that, that I've, I've taken from, from these last two years for sure. And actually, you know, I think while we will look back on this time relatively positively, and I'm sure that's probably quite frustrating for a lot of organisations to hear, because I know it's been really hard, and it, don't get me wrong, it's been really, really challenging for us. Mm. But actually, I think it's meant that we have had to adapt and change at a pace that we just weren't expecting and, and so we've ended up in a better place now than we would have done if there hadn't you know if COVID hadn't been a, a live issue. I'm wondering about the sector that you support obviously in your recruitment specialism the charity sector I mean the struggle and challenges for that sector over the period of the pandemic must have been phenomenal how have you worked to support them with those challenges? 
there's been you know, particular organisations within our sector that have had it really, really tough, you know, they're, they're mm. perhaps reliant on a lot of event income, mm. a lot of face-to-face fundraising activity and all of that stuff got, got stopped. And financially, I know there's, there's been a lot of organisations that have, have really struggled, but it's been really impressive to see how many organisations have adapted so so quickly, moved either their services or their fundraising activity online and I think like us, we'd probably have a lot of success stories to talk about that they've been forced into actioning because of a really difficult situation. But for us as a, as a recruitment partner to the sector, you know, we, we've changed our whole, you know, the whole way we work, I think, has, has changed in the sense of trying to deliver a much higher quality service of, of recruitment. We're trying to be much more involved to support organisations to recruit more inclusively. But generally, I think recognising how important it is that we deliver a high quality service and properly partner with with organisations for their recruitment. As we emerge into whatever we're emerging into, I'm not entirely sure how to how to characterise it. But as we see our markets changing again now, we're reading more and more and we're hearing more and more, aren't we, about recruitment and the finding of staff being one of the biggest challenges for organisations in every sector at the moment. And that it's been given a wonderful title, hasn't it? The Great Resignation. I wonder if that's something that we could explore together today. What's your take on that? What do you think about that as a title first? And then what's your experience of it? It's a really interesting topic. And um, and I, I totally get the theory behind it. You know, the theory being that there will be you know, a huge shift in people changing roles as a result of issues like like burnout, like people reflecting and having a sort of epiphany moment over these last two years around what's important to them, maybe born out of organisations not adapting to their employees' new requirements, i.e. things like working from home, flexible working. And so in theory, you know, the premise that suddenly there's going to be a huge volume of people moving roles. And I have to say we're, you know, as a business, and this is possibly slightly anecdotal, but but we're not seeing this huge shift right now. We're seeing a huge amount of demand. There's a huge determination to, to recruit and there's a lot of opportunity out there. But what we're not seeing right now is a huge volume of candidates and job seekers with an appetite to move Mm. I think there was a little bit of a spike in the summer with a few more people coming onto market but generally speaking I I would say you know this this great resignation this this premise that that suddenly there's going to be lots of people entering the the job seeking market isn't playing out right now I think the first bit has happened where a lot of organizations have not recruited over the last year or so up until the last few months and yeah, are now are now trying to recruit, but they're finding it to be incredibly competitive. I'm thinking about how that how that actually plays out for people. I wonder if there's something about there's so many other changes going on at the moment that changing roles is just feeling like a step too far for people. Yeah, definitely. I, I think for the roles that we've been recruiting over the last eighteen months, I think the importance of demonstrating that a prospective employer is providing a really stable base is suddenly become so much more important so people want to understand what was you know this organization's journey during covid how, how did they fare financially what what's their new financial sort of footing now mm. and i think even much more junior candidates are suddenly much more interested in that whereas pre-covid i, I just don't think it played into their into their thinking at all it wasn't something that they were they were considering 
And that does still remain to be the case at a senior level. We're still seeing slightly depressed numbers in terms of the number of applicants that you'd receive per role, the number of people that you'd have on a long list. Because I still think there's this element of people wanting to just wait and see what, what happens next, what, what, what does the world look and feel like in over the next few months. And if I can stay here, then maybe that's the safest place for me. I wonder then, what's the difference that you're seeing in organisations in the charity sector in terms of, I get a sense from people that perhaps priorities have changed for them over the last 18 months or so. And actually, there's an opportunity for the charity sector to do quite a lot of really powerful attraction work. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it still feels to me like there are a lot of non-profit organisations still missing a trick by not capitalizing on the idea that a lot of people in the commercial world are feeling like there's more to life than than the corporate life and that actually that you know perhaps I think the sector could be doing more to to paint itself as a inclusive dynamic flexible haven for people who perhaps are feeling feeling that way and I think you know to answer your question those are the the bits that we're hearing much more of from from job seekers okay what does flexible working mean to that organization Mm. how much focus are they putting on learning and development How, how intentional are they with their culture and again, these were not necessarily things that we were being, as recruiters, being questioned about pre-COVID. But suddenly now it's what people want to know. And, and I think if the hiring organisation isn't actively thinking about all of that stuff, then they're going to be left behind in comparison to, to their competitors. But the, the flexible working bit is obviously, you know, a, a big question mark, big topic. And again, I just feel like there's a lot of non-profit organisations missing a trick with this where... They're not starting from a point of trust. And I think there's a lot of commercial organisations and charity people. You know, we're a bit of a weird one in that we're a business, but we work with the charity sector. But you know, we've moved to complete flexible working. And that's not a hybrid model. That is genuinely we trust people to make the decision that's right for them personally as to whether they come into the office or don't come into the office. I sort of still hear a lot of cases where organisations can't or, or won't commit to to that and instead are suggesting that within the first few months of 2022 they're expecting to be back in the office with the option to work from home one day a week that's not flexible working that that might have got you by pre-covid but it's not what people want anymore oh i'm hearing like a real reticence to change and to be agile in the sector are you seeing that from the point of view of the way those organizations are being led well, yes. I mean, obviously, look, there's going to be examples. There's going to be extreme examples in, in both of those camps. And there are undoubtedly a lot of organisations who are doing the right things and are trying to be really agile and trying to be really forward thinking. Generally speaking, I think I think the sector suffers from a lack of appetite for risk, and I think and I think it comes from a, comes from a place of wanting to be fair to all of their staff, but they they almost. It feels like a lot of places don't want to make big decisions in case that upsets certain people. And actually, you know, what I think what, what we're trying to achieve at Charity People and what I think other commercial organisations are doing is actually just putting a huge amount of ownership and trust on the individuals and believing that we've got the right people to enable us to, to move forward with, with what it is we want to do. Yes, I think, unfortunately, I think for me, and that, that probably upset a few people in the sector possibly, but I just feel generally that there is still a real lack of appetite for 
being really bold with how you're treating your employees. I mean, I'm sure that comes from a good place. I'm sure it doesn't come from a place of not wanting to support change. I'm sure there's something in there about, you know, protecting the funding and the and the way that the organization set up. I wonder if you have some examples of some of those organizations that you've seen who are doing it really well. What are they doing differently now than they did two years ago? There's some organizations that I can think of that we work with where it, it feels like they're really listening to their staff more. And I know that that sounds really patronizing and I don't mean it to at all, but, but really just trying to hear what people are motivated by, what they want. And, and I think from my experience, when you enter into that type of arrangement, yes, you can't please everyone. It's impossible to please everyone. But actually, mm. I think even if you, if you have an open dialogue with your staff and you're really trying to understand what their motivations are, even if you're upsetting certain people because things aren't changing the way they want them to, if you're able to articulate why you're making certain decisions and they're feeling listened to, I think generally people get on board with that. Mm. You know, there are, there are a couple of organisations which again, quite anecdotally, but listening to some of their staff, it sounds like that's happening a lot more now. And I think that's that's a real positive. But generally, yeah, I, you know, as you just said, it, this isn't coming from a place of wanting to be a difficult employer. I think it's, it is just a fear of either being seen to be too lax or a fear of, of certain newspaper publications investigating them and, and suggesting that, that they were letting their staff do whatever they wanted. And the reality is that actually, I think that a lot of commercial organisations are now in that place and the, and the charity sector is losing its title as being seen as a sort of flexible employer. And that always used to be 10 years ago when I joined it, that used to be the, the sell to people in the corporate world. So you'll be afforded a lot more flexibility in the charity sector. I just don't think that's true anymore, generally. What opportunities do you think there are then in the charity sector that would be appealing to people who are thinking about, I don't know, their passion for the particular environment in which the charity operates or that which it supports? What opportunities would they get in that sector that they don't get externally? I think, well, I think it's the, it's the closeness to the cause, isn't it? I think, you know, mm. you're, you're hoping to tap into these groups of people that, as we talked about with the Great Resignation, supposedly have, have really reassessed the direction of their life during the last 18 months mm. and are now seeking something that means so much more and that you know they're, they're working towards something that is more than just profit for the owner or, or board or, or whoever, shareholders, whoever it might be in their, their current corporate world. And instead, all of the activity that you're undertaking is working towards supporting a tangible thing. And, and that's hugely motivating if you can get that internal comms right to keep people inspired and keep them aware of all their hard work and, and how that's benefiting the, the beneficiaries for whichever charity it is that, that you work for. Beyond that, you know, generally speaking, the, the, the sector undersells itself a lot of the time, I think, in terms of proposed salaries, packages, benefits. I don't think they're too dissimilar to certainly the public sector, but maybe there's just not quite enough done to, to shout about it as a as a potential career to people who who are thinking about what to do next whether they're at the start of their career or, or later on in their uh, working life I wonder what it feels like to move from one to the other I wonder what your experience is of working with individuals who spent some time in their career perhaps in the corporate sector and then find themselves in the charity sector what's their experience like I can think of quite a few people and I think I think some really thrive and I think others really struggle and I, I you know of course it does depend 
hugely on the type of charity that they join. Mm. Generally speaking, having had lots of conversations with people over the years who have perhaps decided they want to think about a, a career in the third sector, generally speaking, it tends to be the larger charities that will entertain the idea of, of hiring someone with no direct sector experience. Mm. And, and, you know, I understand that, that, that they have the resources to absorb that initial bedding in period that, that ultimately you need to afford someone. It's about managing expectations and, and maybe hopefully you know, non-profit organisations will realise that actually that's an investment. You, know, you take someone from the corporate world, you need to see enough in their character to recognise that, yes, in the first few months, they're not going to be as possibly productive as, as taking someone from a, another charity. But actually, there's enough about them to think with the right support and investment, they will be a bigger asset than, than the, someone who you could hire who perhaps has done a very similar role. Um, for a very similar organisation. But I think yeah, it's, it's just hugely dependent on how intentional the hiring organisation is with their onboarding, with the support that they're going to provide someone who doesn't understand the, the language and the nuances of, of the charity sector and how much they've, they've kind of pre-planned what, those, what that first six to 12 months looks like. Some do it well and others, I think, have perhaps struggled more so. I wonder if you might like to comment on the importance of ongoing learning and development within both that sector and and in any case for people joining a new organisation or starting to think about their first role in leadership. What's been your take on investing in actually, you know, learning new skills yourself as a leader? I think, again, this is a topic that is becoming more relevant to job seekers. And I think there's more emphasis being placed on this by potential candidates wanting to understand how much budget is there for for learning and development? What sort of support can I expect? Mm. We're doing a lot of work with trying to build up at Charity People a mentoring network to try and support people with identifying a mentor who can support them. Mm. If the sector is going to or if organisations, I should say, are going to paint themselves as a as an re- attractive proposition to people in the corporate world as we enter 2022, then I think they have to be ready to invest from a learning and development perspective. They have to understand the importance of that to enable someone to make that transition and to, to thrive ultimately. I think it's critical, you know, of course, understand fully that, that budgets are often tight and um we're guilty of that for sure at Charity People. It always looks like one of those things that, that can quite easily be a cost saving if you don't spend the money on, on that training course or on that qualification or whatever for your staff. But actually, it's about seeing the bigger picture and seeing what benefit you get from making that spend. And it's quite possible you'll retain that member of staff for a longer period of time as well because they feel supported. They feel like they're, they're developing in different ways and outside of perhaps their day job. That's hugely you know, beneficial to the organisation as well. Oh, yeah, and you mentioned mentoring and mentorship. I'm fascinated in this as a as an area for organisations to do more work around, really. But I wonder why you think mentorship is important. It's about sharing experiences, isn't it? And I think and um, I think the ability to seek counsel from someone who is not employed by the same organisation as you and just have that alternative perspective, I think, can be really powerful. I don't actually have a mentor yet. I do. I've been meaning, it's on my to-do list, you know, to find someone from the recruitment world who, who would be up for that. But I, I, I've seen lots of candidates in the past who talk to me about how powerful it's been for them to be questioned, whether it's on their own personal career or challenges that they're facing in their in their work life, and to have that voice coming from someone who 
is completely completely impartial to, to the decisions that they're making. There's got to be a huge benefit in that. Yeah, and I'm wondering what you think people can do to be better in a mentoring role themselves. What would a good mentor be doing? Well, I think it's about setting aside the time. Uh, I think that's the, the biggest challenge, isn't it? it you know, it's, it's committing to or making the commitment to your mentee and forming an agreement, really, I suppose, loosely. I mean, that, that makes it sound really formal and, and possibly off-putting slightly. But actually, I think it's about just understanding what, what are you both committing to this? What's going to enable uh, you both to, to get as much out of it as you can? And that, that is the other thing that's worth mentioning, you know, hearing from people who are mentors actually feeling like they get almost just as much out of it from from having conversations with someone who's perhaps at a different point in their career and, and facing different challenges um, and they're learning from from the process as well so I think I think just yeah setting aside the time and, and being quite clear and open with with one another about what your expectations are from from that relationship. I've seen some examples of some wonderful reverse mentoring, actually, where you might take an individual who's you know, much more junior in an organisation and they act as a mentor to someone in the leadership team around an area in which that leader perhaps has no experience or doesn't understand the context of it from the point of view of the audience. So I'm thinking about things like, for example, using social media with impact, working with women or other more diverse groups within the organisation. And I wonder if you've had experience of that I haven't I can't say I have but I love the love the concept and I I can completely see the potential in it absolutely that that sounds brilliant there you go have that Um, (laughs) we talked very briefly um, at the beginning of our conversation about the importance of organizations whether they're in the third sector or otherwise building a more inclusive workforce I wondered if you'd like to say a little bit more about that what's your take on um, how your sector's approaching that I would say there's progress being made. I think generally there's an acceptance that a lot of non-profit organisations haven't done equity, diversity and inclusion particularly well historically. But I think there's a real appetite to, to change that. I think there's a huge acceptance that there's huge commercial benefits to, to getting this right. It's not just a moral issue, but actually commercially, you know, that there's huge value in having a really diverse team. And to build a diverse team, you have to have... An inclusive culture and you have to have an inclusive recruitment process and that's certainly become a much bigger part of our remit as recruiters to to the sector to be challenged on you know what, what are we building into the process to enable them to hire new talent to ensure that people feel that the process is as inclusive as it possibly can be I think that's fascinating. And so I guess my next question is, what are you doing? How are you building different checks and balances into that process? Yeah, there's a real mix of things that I would expect people to be asking their recruiters about. I think the the, the first most obvious and easy jump is, is to move to anonymised CVs, you know, stripping out bias that we all have naturally from, from looking at names and, and mm-hmm. schools or, or, or universities even. And, and just stripping that right back so that that's not creeping into the decision-making process. There's definitely something around ensuring that you're checking comms. So what we do at Charity People is all of the externally facing communications, so adverts and, and um, sort of pre-written emails for, for particular campaigns are being checked by multiple different stakeholders. So again, that we're, we're, we're trying to strip out bias whether that's age-related bias through our through our language or or other 
And then ultimately, you know, it's, I think the biggest factor for, as a recruitment partner and the biggest thing that we need to be thinking about is our networks and, and recognising that actually, if we want to be able to support the charity sector to become much more diverse, then we need to be networking with and marketing roles to places that, that are not traditional charity spaces. So I think that's that, you know, we take that responsibility very highly. But, it, you know, again, if we're, if we're doing that, we, we almost need organisations to recognise that they can't just hire the tried and trusted people who've already worked in the charity sector because those people are, are probably similar to what they've already got. So it goes hand in hand, you know, I think from, from that perspective with sort of expectations and, and acceptance that there are some really talented people who don't know that a career in the sector would be, would be for them. We're really up for the challenge of, of identifying, approaching and, and enticing them. But we need to work with organisations who are really excited by that potential and not put off by the challenges that they'll face by having someone who doesn't understand you know, what a fundraising metric might look like or whatever else it might be that you know, internally you, you would expect people to understand. So we've hired our first head of EDI here at Charity People and she's here to support me to ensure that we're building an inclusive culture but also to support our recruiters so that they're they're equipped to to work with their clients in an inclusive manner to to build diverse teams ultimately yeah i just i think that's going to be hugely important isn't it as we move forward from where we find ourselves now and you know we we started off our conversation talking about the you know the so-called great resignation which you know you brought to life in a different way and said actually you're not necessarily seeing the market flooded with people wanting to move at the moment if organizations are going to work well to attract people into new roles and change that dynamic what two or three bits of advice would you give to leaders in those organizations nick that would help them do that more effectively allow and foster a truly flexible working environment Mm. trust your people both new and current to determine what's the best working pattern for them rethink your expectations so i think you know just because your head of comms has always been a comms professional who's worked for another charity doesn't necessarily mean that that should always be the case. So really challenge challenge yourselves, you know, start to think around that, that concept of if we were building this charity or this organisation from scratch today, how would we build it and, and kind of work backwards from that. And I think just have an open mind. I think that's the most important thing, you know, it, it's from a, from a recruitment perspective that Almost the worst thing you can do when it's when it's challenging and when it's competitive to, to hire is be closed-minded in terms of what your expectations are on, on a new hire. So instead, you know, perhaps you need to be focusing more on character and on personal attributes and, and ignore the, the, the kind of professional experience, but look for attributes that will mean that someone performs brilliantly. And hire them and, and, and train them up, you know, give them the, the tools they need to, to understand the sector that, that you work in, whether that's or whatever that might be. And, you know, play the long game. Yeah. Well, I think that advice is relevant regardless of which sector you're recruiting into or out of. I love that idea. Play the long game. Invest in character and train the skills. Hmm. Very nice. 
Oh, that has been such an interesting conversation today. Thank you so much for your insights into what it's like to be in the recruitment world at the moment. Just been a brilliant conversation. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Oh, not at all. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels. And please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you've found interesting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Cornell. It was produced and edited by Nick Hilton for Podo. Thank you.